Now let's open our Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. Begin a brand new study of God's Word. While you're turning there and before I pray, let me tell you two things about 1 John. It's very short. There's five chapters, 104 verses. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I think is one of the great expositors of all time in the Scriptures, and I never heard him, I read his commentaries, uh, pastored Westminster Chapel in London for many years, has written five volumes, and I think it, it took him three years to preach it on these 104 verses. So there's a lot of gold in these hills, all right? Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapel, was a bivocational pastor for 17 years, taught topically. And then Haley's Bible Handbook said if you actually preach through the Bible, it's more rich and more rewarding for you and your people. So he chose as his first through the Bible, 1 John, and he was there for a year and his church doubled. So there's a lot of fruit in this book. We're only going to spend about six weeks. Uh, if you want more, buy Martin Lloyd-Jones commentary. Uh, you'll get all that you need there. But uh, I'm really believing we're going to see fruit. And we're not worried about numerical growth. We're worried about you growing. I want to grow. I want to be conformed to the image of Christ. So uh, let's pray and then we'll get into 1 John. Lord, your word never returns void. It's living. It's a person. It's Jesus Christ. And Lord, how can we not come away from this book and be changed? So God, as we enter into this study, I pray it wouldn't be Sunday mornings, but it would be through the week that we would mine out the treasures that John wrote about here. And Lord, I pray that there would be fruit from our time together. I thank you for building this community, Lord. It has all sprung from your word and the power of your word in our lives. Lord, it's brought transformation, which is what it's all about. We want to be transformed and to know the fullness of our calling in you. And we pray you give us ears to hear, in Jesus' name, amen. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, have seen with our eyes, and we have gazed upon, looked upon for ourselves, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father was manifested to us. That was our experience, John said. And that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also might have fellowship. That's a Greek word, koinonia. I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. With us, and truly our koinonia, or our fellowship, is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And then John tells us why he's written this letter I've written these things that your joy might be full. The Christian life is a life marked by joy. The Christian experience is one of the most joyful experiences in the world. How can you come to know the God of the universe and not be jumping with joy on the inside? So can you guys take a little joy for the next six weeks? As we travel this book, you think we need a little uptick of joy? I think we do. And so we're going to mine for six weeks joy. Before we get there, let's talk about John, because John has a lot of cred, right? This is a guy you want to listen to. First of all, he's like you and me, small business owner, knows how to work hard. He's a fisherman. He's a regular blue-collar guy who makes the greatest decision any man or woman can make in a lifetime. He becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. Leaves fishing behind, leaves his nets behind, and starts this this journey following Jesus Christ. Uh, not only does God make him a fisher of men, he becomes a prolific writer. 
He writes the Gospel of John, which is the universal gospel or the gospel to the world. He doesn't see the world like Luke does or Matthew. You know, he's not a natural born leader. He's more of an artist, more of a mystic. He sees the Godhood of Jesus being coming out of his flesh and uh, being on other people. You know, blind men, woman at the well, people of ill repute. Uh, he writes the Gospel of John, the most famous verse maybe in the New Testament he writes, and whenever you watch football, you'll see it, John 3, 16, God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son that you would never perish, but all who would believe in him would have eternal life. Then he gets to write, at a very old age, the book of Revelation, which had to be really cool, because it said he was transported unto the day of the Lord. Now, some people think it was the day of the Lord he wrote it on Sunday. I don't think so. I think he got transported to a time in the near distant future, I think, where he saw a lot of what we see today, Apache helicopters, nuclear arms. Uh, he didn't have any way to describe it. He wrote uh, similes and the best he could, but he got to write about Jesus coming quickly. He writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. How about this? In the Gospel of John, the name he has for himself is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Can you imagine what life would be like if you saw yourself that way? I'm the disciple Jesus loves. Kind of change everything. When all the other disciples scattered when Jesus was crucified, he was at the foot of the cross with Mary. Remember, Jesus said, behold my mother. Became the pastor at one of the most influential churches in the first century at Ephesus and outlived all the other disciples. Legend has it, it's not in the Bible, that at an old age he couldn't walk anymore and they would carry him in and out of the church at Ephesus and all he would say to people is, love one another, love one another, love one another. He knew what the gospel was all about. And he writes here about experience, right? It's similar to how he starts John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he tabernacled among us. This is the transcendent God who came down and became like us so that he would be with us. And he uses this word koinonia. Quite often in the gospel, here in 1 John, the God who wants to be a partner with us, a friend with us. And then he says, what we have seen and heard and handled concerning the word of life. Now, I think he's moving into the resurrection here. Um, remember on Resurrection Sunday when the women said, you know, the Lord is gone, the tomb's empty, the stone's been rolled away. Uh, John makes sure we know he was the first to see, right? Uh, him and Peter had a foot race, and he makes sure we know in the gospel he beat Peter there, typical guy. And he looks in, and it's empty, right? We have seen. And then he touched, right? Jesus said, look, touch me. Does a spirit have flesh, you know, does a spirit have flesh and, and bones? And they, they put their hands in the nail-scarred they put their fingers in his nail-scarred hand. That which we have heard, they heard him say, tarry in Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And what's so great about what John writes is, you know, Scripture tells us no one has ever seen God at any time. God is spirit. But Jesus came to reveal him. Every religion, every cult has a divine being, a transcendent being. But John writes about the one who not only came near, but wants to be friends with us. And then he writes this in verse four, I have written these things that your joy might be full. I said it before, I'll say it for six weeks. Joy is the fundamental characteristic of a person that follows Jesus. And if that's true, we can't start a series without asking the question, where are you today in relation to joy? Where is your joy meter? 
Is it full? Would you say, Pastor Bob, it's at fullness of joy? Is it halfway? Is it low? In a room this size, I think we're all over the place, right? There's some people faking it till they make it, right? I know I'm supposed to be joyful. I'm kind of acting that way. Some of you are joy challenged. Some of you are guilty about not having joy. Some of you are guilty because you think you can have joy. And yet over and over again, John says the purpose that I'm writing is that your joy would be full. Now this has been my experience for 35 years. I have had the joy of the Lord for all 35 years I've followed Christ. Now hear me clearly. It doesn't mean I haven't walked through times of sadness or seasons of loss and grief. It doesn't mean I haven't experienced the difficulties of life. You can't have four kids be married for 30-some years, pastor a church this size, and not go through some difficult and hard times. But I can't think of a day where I didn't open my Bible or talk to God in prayer, and regardless of everything that was going on, not draw from the wells of my salvation and have the joy of the Lord. So what we're going to have to talk about in this series is, what is joy? If joy is possible, what is it? What is the true source of joy? And then what is the reason why we're not joyful? Uh, one thing I've learned in 25 years of pastoring and reading the Bible is that there are joy killers out there. There are things that will steal your joy and you will not walk in fullness of joy. I want to go through a few just as we start. Number one, there's an enemy, right? John wrote, Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to steal your joy. He can't steal your salvation, so he'll steal your joy. And one of the ways he steals our joy is by lying to us, right? I mean, Adam and Eve knew fullness of joy. They walked with God in the cool of the evening breezes. What was that like? I don't know. Sin hadn't entered the world. God had provided for them. And then Satan comes along and says, oh, no, 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 God's withheld something from you. There's something greater on the other side, and they make the worst decision the world's ever seen. And their joy was taken away. Second thing will take your joy away is aberrant teaching, even within the church. Uh, the early church dealt with the thing called Gnosticism. It's a, a lot of what the New Testament's written against. The Gnostics came along and they said, look, matter is evil and the spirit is what's good. And there was always, like, Gnosticism had many categories. Basically, the way it works now is, oh, you guys, you study the Bible, you go to church, that's great. But have you heard about this? Or there's a church a couple miles away and they're teaching this. And if you just get into this, you'll be complete. You'll be on a higher plane. That's Gnosticism. And I've seen that shipwreck a lot of people and steal their joy. A third reason why people lack joy is they're stuck. Some of you are stuck today. A lot of my friends are stuck. They're stuck because they're in a period where they raise their kids and life revolves around their kids and now the kids are gone and now they're like, oh my gosh, I, I don't have to bring my kids to church. Do I really want to go to church? And, and, and all of a sudden, spiritually, they're just stuck. Sometimes you get stuck in your 20s or you're looking for a spouse. You're stuck in your 30s because of a career. You can get spiritually stuck. And uh, we'll try and get you unstuck in the next six weeks. Uh, people can steal your joy. The reason I know that is I'm a people and I've stolen other people's joy. Uh, somebody told me life's filled with drainers and fillers. And we're all drainers and fillers at times, right? I drain people, I fill people. But if you're around drainers too much, you'll be drained and you will lack joy. 
You've got to be around people that fill you up, people that excite you, people that you see something in them that you desire, people that inspire you. Yes, we're called to pull people along, but if you're not filled, you can't help anybody else. We'll get into all that and talk about how that can work. Some people lack joy because of victimization. They bought into our culture, which is a culture of victims, right? I've been dealt a bad hand, or I don't like my lot in life, or a series of things have happened to me, and you start to feel like a victim, and everything's caving in on me, and you'll lose joy really quickly. Another reason people lose joy is pain and suffering. I'm going to share with you in a few minutes, and I talk a lot about this, and there are some classic books in our bookstore on pain and suffering. Sometimes the people who have experienced the most pain and the most suffering have found the greatest joy. We'll talk about that in this series. Sin will steal your joy. Uh, Look at verse 5. John said, this is the message which you have heard from him, that's Jesus, and we declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, the truth's not in us. And then verse nine, one of the classic verses in the Bible. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Unconfessed sin or living in sin will steal your joy for sure. David did it for a year. He said it was like rottenness in my bones. And you know what happens when you're living in habitual sin? You start to drift from church, drift from friends, drift from fellowship, and there's a time where you will lose your joy. The beautiful thing is there's confession. It's a wonderful sacrament. Not only to confess to God, but to others. It cleanses the soul. There's a God who's longing to forgive. Disobedience to God's ways can steal your joy. Not walking in love or the fruit of the Spirit, these are all joy killers. But at the end of the day, John says joy is possible. It is possible for those that follow Jesus to draw from the wells of their salvation and experience joy. One of my favorite scenes in any movie is from Mr. Holland's opus. Now it's probably long, it's older than I think, probably 20 some years, some of you haven't seen it, some of you can go out on Netflix. But uh, it's Richard Dreyfuss from Jaws, right? And uh, he's Mr. Holland. He's a music teacher. And not only does he have to teach music class, he has to give lessons after class. And after class, he's giving clarinet lessons to this tall redhead who is terrible on the clarinet. She's brutal. Can't carry a tune. It's awful. And finally, after so many lessons, he looks at her and he says, is it any fun? And she said, excuse me? He said, is it any fun? She goes, you mean the clarinet? Uh, No, I just play because my dad said I have to play an instrument. He's like, all right. He goes, if we have to do it, we have to do it. He goes, but let me ask you this. What brings you joy in life? What do you experience in life that just brings out the best in you? And she says, I don't know, but I love sunsets. And Mr. Holland said, then play the sunset. And at the end of the movie, on his final day, she comes in, she's the mayor of the town, and she plays the clarinet, and it's beautiful, and she learned to play the sunset. And I think what God's saying to a whole lot of us, wherever we are, is we need to learn to play the sunset. 
We need to learn to understand that there is a God who has infinite capacity for joy and wants us to experience joy. C.S. Lewis said joy is the serious business of heaven. The psalmist said the joy of the Lord is my strength. And James says even when you go through trials, you can count it all joy because there is a God who is walking with you through it. Joy is the serious business of heaven. The question is, what is it? What is joy? What what does it mean? What does it feel like? What does it look like? I can give you a boatload of definitions and theological terms, but this is one time where I think the picture can uh, outdo words. I really do. And it comes from G.K. Chesterton. Everybody should read a Chesterton book once in their life. And he talks about when you're playing with your kids, there comes a time, and everybody knows this, even aunts and uncles and siblings, where the kid says, do it again, right? So you blow a big bubble and they pop it and they laugh and do it again. You blow another bubble, do it again. For my kids, it was throwing them in the pool. So every time we went to a pool, dad, can you throw us? Yeah, and I'd throw them, do it again, do it again. And then I flipped them, do it again. And of course, all I wanted to do was go read the sports section by, you know, the poolside. Uh, do it again, do it again. I'm like, yeah, but you're 16. This is getting really hard, you know? Chesterton said that a child kicks his legs rhythmically through excess, not the absence of life. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit, listen to this, fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and they're still excited. Grown-ups, not so much. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt in what Chesterton calls monotony. He says, but perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It is possible every day that God says to the sun, do it again, and in the evening to the moon, do it again. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but he's never got tired of making them. Chesterton went on to say, because God has infinite capacity for joy, every day is a new day to him. An infinite capacity for joy. Chesterton said that God has the eternal appetite for infancy. And he says of us, for we have sinned and grown old and our father is younger than we. God is the infinite source of joy. And if you look at children, listen, they're fierce and they're free. Why? Because they're not weighted down with the anxieties of life. They're not worrying about who's putting the roof over their head or who's feeding them. They don't have the, the, the cynicism we have. There's still an innocence and, and an excitement to life. And guess what? There's a certain amount of contentment that even adults don't understand. Because you don't learn the lesson as a parent, so now you become a grandparent, you still go out and buy the $100 gift your, your, your child says to buy the grandkid, and they still play with the box like you knew they would. They're more interested in the box. Because they're content at their core. But the real reason children can exalt in monotony is because they know mom and dad have it all covered. Mom and dad will take care of everything. There's nothing to worry about. They got it covered. That's why Jesus said, if you really want to experience the kingdom, you have to become like a little child. You got to step back from the controls. You got to take the get out of jail free card out of your back pocket. You got to take up your cross and really, really follow Jesus. Really follow him wherever he leads and wherever he guides. That's what joy looks like. 
And John writes here uh, what was manifested to us, and he writes this a lot in his gospel. Verse 2, he says, we bear witness of eternal life. Remember he said, these things I've written that you might know eternal life, and knowing eternal life is knowing God. It's not where you're going, it's what you know. I'm not sure this is true, but this is what I think eternity is going to be like. Think of a moment in your life where you looked around and said, I want to freeze time. Life can't get any better than this. Maybe you're sitting around your living room, all your kids are there, everybody's in a good spot, and you're like, God, just freeze time. Maybe you fell in love, God, freeze time. Or maybe you're hitting it out of the ballpark at work, God, just freeze time. That's what I think eternity is going to be like. I think it's just going to be the essence of all things feeling like they're right. Because Jesus is the source of all joy. This is what John wrote in his gospel, chapter 15, when he talked about the vine. In verse 9 he says, As the Father loved me, I also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, now this is Jesus, these things I have spoken to you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be filled. Now John says this, 1 John 5, 13, these things I have written that you already believe in the name of the Son of God and that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the Son of God. If joy is lacking in your life, something has happened in your relationship with Jesus. Not the church, not any subset of the things you might blame. There, there's something wrong. You're, you're, there's, there's not an abiding anymore. One of the beautiful things of being in the Calvary Chapel movement, not only in our church but the broader movement, is to watch for X amount of years Calvary Chapel be a hospital. A hospital for Christians who would come in who were, you know, just bowed over by legalism and rules and watch them discover grace for the first time. Just amazing. To really find out that this is all about a relationship with God. This is all about a God who has freed us not to do what we want. That's ridiculous. But to ruthlessly follow him and to watch joy return to their life. It's been a beautiful thing. And we watched it over and over as people no longer strive, no longer strive for salvation, right? John said, I've written these things that you know you have eternal life. You know there's churches and conferences where people walk the aisle every week to get saved because they're not sure they're really saved? John said, I've written these things that you would know, that what you promised to him, Romans 8, he's keeping till the final day. It's not about you, it's about him. And there's such a freedom in this. And John writes about this, not that we have a license to pursue our own way, but we have a license to relentlessly pursue joy, which is in the person of Jesus Christ. Now here's the rub. Jesus, the one we're pursuing, was a man of sorrow. He was acquainted with grief. This is, this is fascinating. Uh, most of you, I'm sure, have done personality tests at work, Myers-Briggs, DISC. Uh, we're big on the Enneagram here, if you've ever heard about it. And in one of these personality tests, uh, the number seven in the Enneagram, and I don't know what it is in Myers-Briggs, but it's the enthusiast. Or they literally have it there, the joyful person, okay? Uh, my wife is a seven. She's a joyful person. Six in the morning, she's got a smile like a Cheshire cat, right? The world is full of optimism. The glass is half full. 
We're all different in our personality. This is not what it's talking about here. This isn't natural personality. This is the fruit of the Spirit that bypasses all the hardware and software. This is something God gives. And my wife will tell you, even in her personality, God is the source of her joy. I share with you before, this is important because a lot of people will point to pain and suffering. God dealt me a raw hand. If you went through what I went through, listen, this is why I love biographies. Some of the most joyful person experienced the most pain. Mother Teresa in Calcutta went through serious bouts of depression, but the Lord was her strength and her joy. Many of the great hymn writers, many of the Hebrews 11 characters, they were sawn in two, they were devastated. Daniel and Joseph, before they ever got to the place of prominence and walking in what God had for them, went through tremendous suffering and they counted it all joy because they were plugged in and abiding into the source. Let me give you an experiment, a modern day experiment that proves this out. Cal Berkeley, they took amoebas and they put them in an ideal physical environment, perfect temperature, perfect moisture, perfect protein, and they were astonished that in a very short period of time all these amoebas died. And they were startled until they realized that the environment was too perfect. There was no challenge, there was no need to build resiliency, entropy kicked in, and the amoebas died. Remember I talked about Christians who were stuck? Sometimes we get stuck. We get stuck for a lot of reasons. You might be stuck because it's too comfortable, too predictable. Uh, there's a book I read called Death by Suburb. It's kind of a sociological book, so don't take it all to heart. The writer said the suburbs tend to produce inverse spiritual cripples. Suburbia is a flat world in which the edges are clearly defined and the mysterious ocean is rarely explored. Every decision gets planned out like the practice of registering at retail stores for one's wedding gifts. Only tragedy ever surprises us. In the burb I inhabit, many of the opportunities for Bible study, innovative worship services, helping the homeless, children's programs, small groups, and much more abound. Yet I can't shake the image of the inverse cripple with a bloated, tiny soul. Perhaps that's one of the effects of comfortable suburban living. Too much of the good life ends up being toxic, deforming us spiritually. The drive to succeed and to make one's children succeed overpowers the best of intentions to live more reflectively no matter the piety. Should it be any surprise that true life in Christ never germinates? Now look, that's an overstatement. I live in the suburbs and so do most of you. And going to the inner city is not going to change anything. What's he saying there? What he's saying there is if we buy into the credo of the suburbs, where, gosh, I moved to this cul-de-sac where nothing will ever go wrong and tragedy will never come to my door. It's one of the reasons we started Compassion and Justice Weekend. We wanted to take groups of people to Kensington, to Camden, to Chester. We knew they would never go on their own, but we knew if we could get them there, God could break their heart for the least of these. And so many of you have taken that step and it's been rich and rewarding and you started ministries and you've gone out on your own. See, when Jesus told the rich young ruler to leave it behind, he was literally giving him a life of reckless joy. But you gotta follow Jesus. And when you follow Jesus, he will lead us into places we may not have wanted to go, but they'll be good for us. And we'll grow and we'll find that joy will be fierce and free. 
That's what Jesus does when he's the source. And it's been great watching so many of the folks in our church take that step. Now, here's the payoff. When Jesus is the source, watch what happens. One more time, look at these verses. That which we have gazed upon and looked upon and handled concerning eternal life that was manifested toward us, verse 3, and we declare to you that your fellowship might be with us and our fellowship is with the Father and Son, Jesus Christ. Now, every Christian who's read their Bible or been a Christian for any amount of time knows that the word there for fellowship is koinonia. I never used the word fellowship for 21 years until I became a Christian, right? And then you pick up these Christian words. Here's the problem. It's a translation from a Greek word, koinonia, which somebody just told me was the winning word on the national spelling bee. Somebody could fact check that. I don't know if it's true. Um, Koinonia is a Greek word. Listen, people will tell you it means fellowship. No, it's a very hard word to translate. It's not easy. Get out all your vines, dictionaries, whatever you want to do. Um, Fellowship is a translation. Communion is a translation. Partnership is a translation. I was reading about the French. And the French literally invented the word police. Do you ever wonder why when you travel the world, it's always the police everywhere? I always thought because we had police and everybody copied us. Typical American, right? French invented the word. The English had no translation, so they just called it police, and then they ruled the world for a while, and so everybody calls it the police. The word koinonia can't be translated, so we try all these kind of failed English words. But if you kind of tease it out, it really does mean friendship. Because we talk about having koinonia. John's saying you can have fellowship with God. You can be the friend of God. Now, this sounds blasphemous, but it's true because we see it in Genesis. We see it with Moses. We see it all through the Bible. Yes, there's a God who's transcended. He's holy, but he, he became one of us to fellowship with us. In Jeremiah 23, 8, God said, Am I only a God nearby and not a God far away? We gotta remember God's holiness, right? Remember when Moses said we're gonna go up and see the Lord, they're like, no, Moses, we'll stay here, you go, just report back to us, because there was thundering and quaking and lightning. But there is a God who draws near like a friend. And Jesus said, you're my friends. So if he's really our friend, what does that mean? Well, let me tell you about the friends I have. The real friends I have, I can pour out my soul to them. I'm not guarded around them. And I trust them. I can be honest. Martha was like this. If Jesus counted any place home on earth, it was in Bethany with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And word got to him that Lazarus had died. And Jesus waited three days and he comes. And Martha, in all honesty, because they were friends, said, had you been here my brother would have never died. In other words, she said, you let me down. You know it's okay to say that to God? See, there's times where I've run out of people to talk to. I've run out of counselors. And I just sit there with God and say, God, I mean, no one understands me, nobody believes me, and I just gotta say this. So right telling God you've been dealt a bad hand or life's not working out or it's not fair. The Bible says he listens. He, we can be honest with him. There's things I tell God I can't tell anybody else. Now, it goes another layer than that. You tease this out, you get another word, partnership, which is beautiful. Partnership's all about mutual trust and mutual resources. That's why you form a partnership, a marriage, right? Think about that. 
Mutual interest, mutual resources. See, when I come into relationship with God, the reason everything changes, I begin to read the word of God. It transformed me. And now I begin to love what God loves and hate what he hates. Now, this took some time, but man, it's really true. You know what brings God the greatest joy? Jesus said, when one sinner repents, there is more joy in heaven than 99 who think they don't need repentance. That's why I love sizzling summer. That's why I love what we do. Because when we see people come to conversion, there is great joy. We, God let us enter into that. And then we hate what he hates. Next week we'll talk about sin, and there should be a profound hatred for sin. Hebrews says it's appealing for a season. But talk to some of the people in this church. I talked to somebody in the first service who lost their son to drug overdose. And that's not a pretty picture. Go down to Kensington where we minister with Buddy Osborne and Rock Ministry. Not a pretty picture. It all starts out wonderful. Or children born out of wedlock or, or some of the things we see around the world. We love what God loves. We hate what he hates, but here's the part we never think about. Because we're in a partnership, God loves what we love. Christians never go to this place. You know God loves what you love? Maybe you like playing with your grandkids. Maybe you like baking. Maybe you like sports. Maybe you like boating. Maybe you like to hunt. Maybe you, maybe you like to surf. I love that scene in Chariots of Fire when the lead actor says, I feel God when I run. And the thing we're never fully told is that God feels joy when he watches us run, if that's what we enjoy. One of my favorite chapters is at the end of Job, where God appears to Job out of the whirlwind. And he begins to tell Job, where were you when I created the earth? And he goes through all of these different things, and he's telling Job uh, about how the world works and and he made the sea to stop here and such. And he goes on and on. And he gets to chapter 40 of verse 13. He says, the wings of the ostrich wave proudly. But all her wings and pinions are not like the kindly storks. For she leaves the eggs on the ground and she warms them in the dust. The stork forgets that a foot may crush them or that a wild beast may break them. The stork treats her young harshly as though they were not hers. Her labor is in vain. She has no concern. Why? Verse 17, because God deprived her of wisdom and did not endow her with understanding. Oh, but when she lifts herself on high, she scorns the horse and its rider. Job declares to us a God who created a stork not to be a good mom, not to be criticized for that, but when she does what she's supposed to do, she outflanks the horse and the rider, and we see a God who enjoys things where no one is and no one's watching. And just like he's made billions of daisies and he's made storks, He's made you, and he's made me, and when he looks at you, walking in your giftedness and doing what you enjoy, he has fullness of joy. And so should you. And this is what life's all about. Some people come to me and say, Pastor Bob, Christianity's too hard. We're going against the flow. It's too hard. Sin is, is too attractive. I'm in a two-year retreat where we go every quarter with missionary leaders and ministry leaders. And there's a girl in my small group who got saved out of being Amish. Think about that. I've never met someone like intimately like that. And one time in our small group, she said, I'm just tired of hard. 
And I didn't verbalize this, but I said, but we're all tired of hard. That means we just need to let it go. One of the most freeing experiences I ever had, I was saved into extreme charismania. To get out of it, I got into extreme legalism. But there was a couple in our life who were missionaries, and we really were inspired by this couple. They loved God. They loved his word. The husband just got back from India. He preached at a rally that night. We were all going out to dinner. And um, we're going out to dinner, and, you know, we're looking at diners and such. He said, what about this place over here? And I'm like, oh, that's like a bar. And he goes, hey, we're not religious. It doesn't matter to me. And we went in, and we were there, and there was like scales fell from my eyes and my body. It was like freeing, like, oh, my gosh, I'm right. We have a license to radically pursue God, and there's joy not this list of rules and regulations. And it was freeing. And it was fellowship with God and there was joy. We bought our first house. It was a twin. And about six months after being there, my neighbor comes over to me. He goes, all right, what's going on? I'm like, what are you talking about? He's going, well, you got people coming in night and day. You got these big parties of like 30 people. He said, and you never sell alcohol. What's going on? He said, you guys are like the Grateful Dead without drugs and alcohol. You got to tell me what's going on. Nobody can have this many friends and have this much fun without alcohol and drugs. I said, let's get a cup of coffee. I'll tell you a story. See, that's what makes us attractive. John's going to talk about our love makes us attractive, but our joy makes us attractive. And again, I'm not talking about happiness. I hope everybody understands that. Joy is deeper than that. It's abiding. It's there through every situation, every circumstance. God is the most joyful being in the universe. If we are plugged into him, how could we not have fullness of joy? Give this six weeks, and we'll see where we are. Okay? It's as easy as abiding in the vine. It's going to be a little difficult to get there, but I think it's going to be worth it in the end.